Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. My co-host, Jeff, also known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple months off the podcast for work. Soon as he's back, we'll restart the regular podcast with A Storm of Swords, Sansa 3. While he's away, I'm going to be doing a number of episodes on my own and with guest hosts, including picking up where I left off last time with J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Last week, we covered Chapter 1 of Book 4, The Taming of Smeagol, in which Frodo and Sam wander the labyrinth of the Emmy before running into their new best friend and guide through hell, Gollum, a.k.a. Smeagol. Now we're moving on to Chapter 2 of Book 4, The Passage of the Marshes. In the last chapter, Frodo struck a bargain with Gollum to get them to Mordor. It's a fragile peace between rivals who have more in common than they would care to admit. So, how's that peace holding up? Gollum seems trustworthy. As he leads them out of the Eminuil, Tolkien writes, he would turn and wait for them every time they get too far behind. So he's not trying to abandon them, he's not trying to run off and tell the orcs about them. He refers to himself as Smeagol, and I, an assertion of a whole identity, which he wasn't doing before. But, is this genuine? or just play-acting, until he can get his hands on the ring. Right away in this chapter, we get the presence of water, something desperately missing from the previous chapter, freezing rain aside. Gollum is delighted to be in it, the source of life, the joy of nature he experienced as Smeagol, before he was cut off from it in the Misty Mountains. He even has a little song about it. Songs are important in The Lord of the Rings, the process by which experience is transformed into legend, history, and myth tying all the circles of story and road together, and inspiring us to keep going. That's what Gollum's song is about, leaving the cold, hard land behind to play in the water. It seems to indicate that his conversion was real, he's back to his old self. But then he interrupts his own song, gives us a little commentary track to remind us of the context. What's he going to sing about next, he asks. Can the hobbits guess? Well, Bilbo guessed. Long ago, back in the cave, back when Gollum lost the ring. Sam spots a darkness moving behind his eyes. So even as he keeps singing, we've seen a glimpse that this might be a performance, and Gollum still considers them thieves, his enemies. All the talk about fish reminds Sam of food. It was hard enough keeping the two of them alive. But three? What if Gollum turns on them in the night? Just look at Gollum's song when he's singing about how the cold, hard land gnawed and bit like the mountains were trying to eat you. The mention of food seems to cause Gollum to revert to his old self, indicated by his spoken language as well as his eyes. The green light in his eyes, his yellow teeth, the colorless lips, all the imagery designed to make you shiver. But even though Gollum is hungry, he can't bear elven food any more than elven ropes or elven trees. He's an outcast from that old world. They're dust and ashes to him, like the marshes ahead. And indeed, the world of the elves is dying. It'll all be dust and ash soon. Gollum resigns himself instead to starvation, with his usual hysterical self-pity that's so bleak it loops back around and becomes funny. Frodo says it would do Gollum some good to try and eat some Lembus bread, but he understands that Gollum is past even trying, and that's Frodo's wretched empathy for the powerless that he senses he's becoming. It it makes Sam appreciate the Lembus bread all the more. Gollum talks like day itself might spring out and attack him, a bright terrible eye like Sauron's eye, or those of elves and men. The sun is a comfort to hobbits, but not to him. It's partially a spiritual effect, partially a physical one, and it's partially just pragmatic. I mean, the sun exposes them to watching eyes. Eyes come up again. These chapters in book four are all about eyes. What it means to see and be seen. 
Sam is worried about sleep as well as food. What happens when we sleep? Can we trust Smeagol or Gollum? As he says, just like the last chapter, when Sam is unsure of the name to use, unsure of the identity of the person they're dealing with. Frodo isn't afraid of Gollum attacking them while they sleep, although he acknowledges that he doesn't really know how deep the change runs. Well, what about the change in Sam? He's so afraid of being attacked by Gollum that he considers striking first. And that's Sam's version of the ring's corruption. His loyalty, his courage, weaponized. Naturally, Sam just falls asleep. When he wakes up, he castigates himself with his paternal word hoard of insults. Wonderful phrase on Tolkien's part that Sam has this hoard of insulting words he inherited from his dad. But then Sam realizes, well, now he has proof of Gollum's good intentions, that Gollum restrained himself while both Frodo and Sam slept. Sam feels bad about that for a second, like he's misjudged Gollum. He's allowed his biases and prejudices to get ahead of him. But then just the sight of Gollum, just the shape of him as he comes crawling over a hill, brings all that fear back because Gollum is just so viscerally repulsive to Sam that it overwhelms the better angels of his nature. Then Sam returns to logistics. Okay, so we're, we're headed towards Mordor. We've got a chance to make it there now with Gollum's help. We've escaped the Eminuel. What do we do when we get there? And you can see Frodo hesitate there in the way he says to, to finish. He thinks they're going to fail and that if even if they succeed, they're never going to come back. Where we're going, we don't need bread. And that good sticky feeling inside you get from the Lembus bread is gone. We're in Gollum territory now. Sam considers kissing Frodo's hand, giving him a sense of grace, of belonging, but instead he can only cry over Frodo, a sorrowful blessing. Gollum, meanwhile, has been eating worms. Nasty creature, poor wretch, Sam thinks, his pity mingling with his disgust. He can't really separate the two anymore. And lest we get 100% sympathetic for Gollum here, Tolkien has him say, oh, the hobbits sleep beautifully. He was watching them while they slept, and he was probably struggling about what to do with them. Trust Smeagol now? He asks. It's an open question, and he's always going to be a step ahead, quite literally. They finally escape from the Emmy Muiel, but it doesn't really feel like an escape. They're entering pure stagnation. We can't see the sun, and the stream disappears into the bog. It's what you might call a pea super, a thick, almost gelatinous fog. There are mists and pools, the mountains again looming like a cloud, this time above the sea of the marsh, as Tolkien makes the comparison. It's sullen, he writes, and windless. And despite there being no wind, the reeds seem to whisper at our heroes. It's very creepy. It's interesting to compare it to the Emmy Muiel as a setting. Back when I was doing book two, I compared Moria and Lothlorien, saying that they were opposites that explored the dark and light in interesting ways. That Moria showed you the depths of darkness, and Lothlorien showed you the danger of becoming too lost in the light. And I think the same thing applies here. The Dead Marshes are different from the hills of the Emmy Muiel, but also the same at some level. It's a wide open space, you can see where you're going, but that means you can also be seen. And the appearance of safety compared to the hills is actually a trap. There is still only a very narrow path you can follow to survive. Tolkien describes it as an endless network of pools and soft mires and wandering half-strangled watercourses. Life trying, and generally failing, to find a way in a dead place. Tolkien steps outside the characters for a second to show us the geography, telling us that Frodo and Sam don't realize they're right near the edge of the marshes. They could get out if they knew the area, but that wouldn't really help them, because then they'd be crossing the battle plains right outside the Black Gate. They'd be exposing themselves to the eyes of anyone watching from Mordor. And then Tolkien has Gollum tell the hobbits that. We have to go this way. There's a quicker way around the marshes to the Black Gate, but we'll definitely get caught if we go that way. So that's Tolkien using the story structure to show us Gollum's honesty. Again, he's giving us evidence that Gollum is operating in good faith here. But Gollum is also taking them this way because he has that religious dread of Sauron, the eye that can cut through any strategy. And Gollum says that by going through the marshes, 
Well, it's not that we're going to escape Sauron, but we might make it a little closer before being caught. And that fits Frodo's pessimism. You just, you get a little fatalist living as a ring bearer. You start to look at things a little differently than Sam does. And the dead marshes match that gloom, the sense that they're just circling the drain. Tolkien describes the place as dreary and wearisome, where cold, clammy winter still rules. The only green thing to be found here is pond scum. Everything else is rotting. The hobbits long for the sun, described beautifully as high and golden now in a serene country with floors of dazzling foam. So close, yet so far, like the Shire. The hobbits see only a passing ghost of her, like the memory of home, like the songs the Ents sing about the Entwives, or the songs the Elves sing about life before the breaking of the world. No color from the sun, no warmth. But even that ghost is too much for Gollum. He's on the other side of the process. The sun is as painful for him as the Eye of Sauron. It's too silent here, the hobbits think, the silence of the grave. Sam mourns the birds, and so does Gollum. But for different reasons. Sam just wants to be reminded of the joy of life and sit and be serene with the sound of birdsong. And Gollum would like to eat the birds very much, please. The air gets thicker, the ground gets wetter, and suddenly lights appear. It's subtly terrifying, especially how Tolkien paces it. At first, Sam thinks something is wrong with his vision, but the lights keep coming. Described in spine-tingling detail as shining smoke and ghostly sheets. They're real and not real like the mountains resembling smoke, as if the Eye of Sauron has fallen to earth as a thousand tiny flames. They're so eerie, like Gollum's footsteps in Moria, or the weird temporal distortions in Lothlorien, where you're like, wait, how long have we been here again? Same kind of effect here. But they're the opposite of the glimmering light on the elven rope that restored Frodo's sight in the previous chapter. This time, the light hypnotizes Frodo, freezing him in place as the slime drips from his fingers, a chilling figure of someone alienated from his own life. For this is the land of the dead, as Sam discovers to his horror when he stumbles into the water and sees corpses there, the big jump scare of the chapter. As usual with The Lord of the Rings, this is all about time and story. These are the fallen soldiers of the Last Alliance, along with the fallen servants of Sauron that they fought. That was thousands of years ago, so as Sam says, it doesn't make sense for the literal corpses to still be there. They're ghosts, ephemeral phantoms like the candles that make them visible. You can see them, but you cannot touch them, Gollum says. You cannot reach them no matter how you try. Stories defy time, restoring the dead to life, but only as a metaphor. And the dead marshes is where Tolkien acknowledges that memory is never like the real thing. I had forgotten how poetic and delicate Gollum gets here. I remembered him cackling that these are the dead marshes like the movie and saying you shouldn't follow the lights, but not his sadness when he admits trying to touch the dead, only to find that they're only shapes to see like the shadow puppets of stories. If you chase them, you'll drown and join them. And it's so haunting that thousands of years ago, the division between the elves and the men and the orcs were so strong they fought a war over it, but now they're all in the same place. They're all sharing this mass grave. It reminds me of that, that great ending to the movie Barry Lyndon when you've just seen three hours of people scheming and dueling and lying and cheating each other just to get hold of a scrap of power or this bit of land or this kind of uniform. And at the very end of the movie, there's just text on the screen saying that every, the, everyone who's in this movie, they lived in the reign of George III. So no matter, no matter how handsome or ugly or rich or poor or good or bad they were, they're all equal now. And that same sense of death as the great leveler applies to the dead marshes as well. No precious, Gollum says, talking to the ring like he always does. But he's also saying that the dead have lost anything precious about them. There's nothing to seek, nothing to strive for and believe in. 
Medievalists Stuart Lee and Elizabeth Solopova have argued that the Dead Marshes are described similarly to Grendel's wasteland in Beowulf, with the horrible wonder of fire on the water. Tolkien himself wrote in a letter that he was inspired by the aftermath of the Battle of the Somme, one of the most deadly catastrophes of the First World War. It's both. Tolkien's beloved myths crashing headlong into the modern world, the fictions he loved and the realities he hated. Here's the Western world at its creative best, and here's what it really looked like when that world imploded. Mud, blood, and futility. That was the emerging consensus on the Somme. A disastrously mismanaged battle on the way to Allied victory. For all that Tolkien vocally objected to framing the Lord of the Rings as an allegory, it's hard not to see it that way here. The last alliance won the war, but lost the peace, allowing the enemy to return in an even more dangerous form. Gollum is centuries old. But the story of the Last Alliance, he says, was already ancient when he was young. When I was young, he says. When I still had an I. Before the precious came. Before the One Ring destroyed any idea of self. Young or old, day or night. Anything that might give my life structure or meaning. Before it took Smeagol away and left Gollum in his place. A fate worse than death. Sam sees the dead through the water, an element of transference, as though it's a window glazed with grimy glass, Tolkien writes. Beautiful bit of alliteration there. But that glass could just as easily be a mirror. Someday, Frodo and Sam will be nothing but stories. Phantom candles flickering in the darkness. Frodo talks like he's in a dream, Tolkien writes. Maybe death is like a dream. Or maybe life is the dream. And then we wake up. And so our not-so-holy trinity escapes the marshes, though not without cost. Sam realizes suddenly that he and Frodo are crawling along, just like Gollum, in order to follow his path exactly, and he thinks, three precious little Gollums in a row we shall be. Feels like a potential Gilbert and Sullivan reference to me, three little maids from school are we. Tolkien's poem Errantry actually follows the tune of the Gilbert and Sullivan song, I am the very model of the modern major general, but that's a whole episode on its own. Anyway, Sam is worried that he and Frodo are turning into Gollum, following in their ancestors' footsteps figuratively as well as literally. They're passing into Sauron's domain now. The ring's home turf, and they might be transformed by the darkness like Gollum was. The hobbits get covered in slime making their way out of the marshes. It leaves its stink on them, as Gollum points out. Sam stinks! And maybe their time with him will do the same to their souls. But they still need him. He knows this area so well that, by some blended sense, as Tolkien writes, he can make his way through it in the dark. An experienced guide at the end of the world. Yet Gollum suddenly gets spooked and our hackles rise before we know why. Then they hear it. A screaming comes across the sky, as they heard in the Eminuel, the sound of cruelty, stirring the cold winds as it comes, plunging the lingering lights into darkness. The moon breaks through the clouds, and Frodo and Sam turn to the light with relief, but Gollum curses the white face, and he might have the right of it, because there it is, a new cloud rising to replace the old, a shadow with wings against the light. And then it's gone, the wind following, leaving only the pale moonlight behind. This is a set piece of pure terror, far worse than anything in the marshes, because it is not dead. It's not alive. It's worse than either, the undead, the specter of immortality like Gollum himself. The wraith on the wind is a threat, but also a cautionary tale. This is what Mordor will make of you. And that's why a change comes over the companions after the shadow passes. They've been reminded of the stakes, and so pushed to their limit. Sam notices that while Gollum is fawning even more than before, as if clinging to Frodo for safety, he's also got a strange light in his eyes. And that's always a sign of a struggle going on back there in his mind. 
Gollum is picking up on something, the same thing Sam is picking up on. Frodo is exhausted. And Tolkien takes us inside Frodo's head to show us what's going on. The ring is dragging him down. Literally, it feels. A weight like a millstone around his neck. A cross on his back. The burden he bears so others may be free. But it's even worse than that. Frodo can feel the eye. A presence like the storm cloud that swept over the Emin-Muil. Sauron comes from outside the physical world. He's a fallen god, a spiritual entity able to pierce all the veils of this mortal plane to touch you where no one else can, in your soul. Tolkien describes the sensation with palpable dread. Frodo feels like he's staring into the sun, walking into its fiery forges to be remade in its image, like Gollum and the ringwraiths before him. And what about Gollum? He probably feels the same way, Tolkien writes, but the hobbits can't guess. After plunging us deep into Frodo's psyche, the author withholds with Gollum to establish the limits of perspective and observation, keeping us wondering. Sam not only doesn't know what Gollum is thinking, he doesn't even realize that a dark cloud is invading his own thoughts and feelings. Sam is not immune to the shadow. No one is, except maybe Tom Bombadil. And Sam is devoted almost to a fault, neglecting his focus on everything else but taking care of Frodo. That's an obsession in its own right, albeit not as destructive as Gollum's obsession with the precious. The sun rises and shows them Mordor. Much closer now, the mountains made tangible and no longer resembling smoke on the horizon. It's all real. It's all coming true. When we first saw Isengard near the end of Book 3, Tolkien wrote that Saruman had fashioned it in imitation of Mordor. And now we begin to see the source of his inspiration. Tolkien's imagery is at its best here, perfectly capturing the bleak horror of the wasteland. Just listen to his adjectives and form the picture in your mind. Grim, dismal, dead, barren, pitiless, harsh, bitter, broken, loathsome, crushed, diseased, sickly, foul, and obscene. The pools are gasping and choked with ash and mud, language designed to flood your own mouth with bile. Even in the Emimuel and the Dead Marshes, Frodo thinks, some growing things remained, however haggard or leprous as Tolkien describes them. Here, there is nothing. Nothing at all. No green, only gray. Rocks crushed and piled high as if in mockery of trees. Tombstones in a graveyard. The light itself is reluctant, as Tolkien writes. Frodo compared the great eye to the sun, and it's as if the sun itself is afraid to enter here, defiled, as Tolkien writes, and offering no comfort. Frodo stares with horror, and Tolkien describes his eyes as shrinking, like they're trying to hide from reality along with the sun. The hobbits feel helpless, powerless, as if the enormity of their task is only fully revealed now, when they contemplate the ruinous strength of the opposition. They're like ghosts, Tolkien writes, little squeaking ghosts, like those in the marshes, like the strange phantoms and faces out of the past that Frodo thinks he sees in the sky. The past is the only place for such faces. Life persists here only in memory. This place is supposed to represent hell, of course. Next chapter, our heroes will stare down the entranceway to the fiery pits and torments of Mordor proper. It's a representation of spiritual sickness, what's left over when the lust for power embodied by the ring takes everything away. But there's a political dimension to this, too. Tolkien's anger and sorrow at the industrialized machines of commerce and war eating up the natural world. In Book 3, we saw nature strike back in the form of the Ents flooding Isengard, with the hope that one day something will grow there. 
The same thing occurs at the end of the story with the scouring of the Shire when they get rid of Saruman's infernal machines and start planting trees again. But here, the gardens of the Entwives are gone. There can be no such rebellion and rejuvenation. There's no foundation for it. Instead, Tolkien writes, it's a desolation, defiled so deeply that only another breaking of the world, the sea rushing in, could ever heal it. This is Sauron's legacy, his monument, Tolkien writes, that will endure long after his own purposes are gone. It's the wasteland the author saw emerging all around him as the 20th century hurtled forward. And this dry, barren world resonates all the more now, as we stare down the barrel of catastrophic climate change like Frodo staring down the eye. This is the future, the triumph of death. And it's here that we really begin to understand what the ring has done to Gollum. Sam overhears him talking to himself. More than that, debating himself. His voice changes as it alternates back and forth. There's a different light in each of his eyes. Gollum isn't just performing for the hobbits. His mind has been so transformed by the ring, and also, I assume, centuries of isolation, that he functionally has two different personalities, and all they have in common is the ring. At first, Sam thinks Gollum is trying to wake up Frodo, because in his sleep, Frodo has slid down to the bottom of the pit, a metaphor for his internal fall into the darkness, Gollum waiting for him in his dreams. The argument inside Gollum is between someone who used to be like Frodo and someone who is becoming more like Sauron. The former misses the sound of wind in the trees. The latter is more at home here, at the end of all things. Frodo has provoked the agony of choice in Gollum. He can't simply pursue the precious like a machine designed for that purpose. He has to decide what he will do, and so who he will be. Smeagol is the one who calls himself I, a secure, stable identity, one with a past and a future, an inviolate hole outside the reach of the eye in the sky. Gollum is the one who says we, a split identity, fractured into not only these two personalities, but the ring itself, a presence so powerful that it's part of him. Gollum is starved of all life and meaning, thinking only of the precious. Smeagol speaks in short, blunt sentences, right to the point. Gollum talks around everything with his little muttered phrases, his yes, yes, yes. This is what it's like inside his head now, this constant war with no peace. They're fighting over, what else, what to do about Frodo and the ring. Claws reaching out and then pulling back, caught on a knife's edge. Smeagol says that he promised to help, and he takes that seriously. His word is his bond. He's devoted to Frodo like Sam. Like Frodo himself is devoted to fulfilling his promise to take the ring to Mount Doom. Gollum twists that promise around. No, we swore to serve the master of the precious. So if we took the precious, we'd be the master and could serve ourselves without breaking our promise. As always, he's such a poignant mix of threatening and pitiful. He's preparing to betray our heroes. We already know how dangerous he is, but it's all in the name of such a sad little dream we know can't come true. And he has to tie himself into such torturous logical knots to even get there. Gollum will never be the master of the precious. There is only one Lord of the Ring, and he does not share power. Smeagol knows that. He's terrified of Sauron, of him with a capital H. Gollum says that with the Ring, they can grow great enough to resist Sauron and all his servants. It's the exact same temptation that Galadriel resisted, and to which Boromir surrendered. But their dreams were ambitious, and they extended beyond themselves. They were tempted to take the Ring in order to protect their lands and people from the Dark Lord. Gollum shows us the end state of that process, when the obsessive power of the ring has alienated you from anything that could be worth defending with it. 
It's so sad to realize that Gollum can't even imagine doing anything with the ring other than finally getting three square meals a day. It fits the setting, the wasteland all around them. This is all Sauron ever did with the ring, and all he would ever do if he got it back. Gollum is worried that Frodo is bringing the ring to Sauron. That's kind of what inspires this argument within him. But that's all Gollum would be doing if he took the precious. So the Gollum half of the personality might not have a long-term plan worthy of the name. But in the short term, he is very cunning enough to convince Smeagol. It's skin-crawling to watch Gollum turn Smeagol's good intentions against him, saying that they'll use the ring to make Sam crawl. Oh, but not Frodo, not the nice master. They'll leave him alone. Although, would it be so bad if they made him crawl? He's a Baggins, after all, kin to the Baggins who stole the precious from us. Smeagol protests, but weakly. He's defined by weakness. The things he loves are so distant that they seem inaccessible. It's easier to surrender to Gollum's more active will. Smeagol starts every sentence in this fight with but, reacting to Gollum's provocations, giving way bit by bit. He starts by protesting that they promise to be good. By the end, he's only protesting that they're outnumbered by the hobbits because there are actually two of them. So they need help to get the precious back. Well, maybe she might help. Sam watches all of this fascinated, as Tolkien writes, caught between dread and wonder. Up to this point, good old Sam had thought Gollum might just want to eat them, like the trolls in Bilbo's stories. Sam hadn't really realized how strong the ring's hold was on Gollum, which you could say is a way of avoiding realizing how strong the ring's hold is on Master Frodo. Sam realizes, of course, that the he Gollum refers to must be Sauron, but neither Sam nor the reader has enough information to realize who she is. Before we ever meet the nightmare giant spider Shelob, she is framed as the mother to Sauron's father, the parental figures that embody Gollum's doom, he and she. The reader was already primed for Gollum to strike at some point. Now the tension ratchets up further, as he has a secret master plan we only partially understand. Sam, too, is learning. He pretends he was sleeping and heard nothing, which is a more cunning move than we're used to from him. He has to be as sly as Gollum in order to outwit Gollum. Sam knows enough to realize that they're in an impossible position, as Gollum could be even more dangerous let loose to bring his mysterious allies down on them. Frodo, ironically, feels better than ever. In his dreams, the dark shadow faded, and a vision of light was restored. It's a prophetic dream of his rejuvenation in the West in the final moments of the story. He doesn't remember the details of it. He only remembers the feeling. But that's enough to keep him going. A spark of hope. He's undergoing the same struggle as Gollum, but he's able to keep the darkness at bay. For the moment. Suddenly, the script has flipped. Before, Sam felt like Frodo and Gollum understood each other at a level he couldn't access. Now, he knows more about what Gollum is up to than Frodo. Gollum plays the eager pet dog again for the Master of the Precious, but he shrinks at the prospect of making it through the Black Gate. And he's so terrified by the Ringwraith passing by overhead again that he briefly refuses to keep going. It's no use, he cries. It's no use. The death of hope. It's a reminder that for all his wicked plotting, Gollum is basically subservient to the power of the ring, embodied by that wraith overhead which was once a man. Frodo's kindness awoke Smeagol, the last lingering remnants of love, but it's only by the threat of force that Frodo gets Gollum moving again. That's the world to which Gollum belongs, to which both he and she belong. As the chapter ends, Tolkien reminds us what that world is made of. Nothing. Our heroes hear nothing and see nothing as they plunge ahead into the heart of darkness. 
So I wrap up each of these episodes talking a little bit about how the movie adaptations made by Peter Jackson and company that came out about 20 years ago, how they handled each stretch of the material. Filming the Dead Marshes scene seems to have been one of the more miserable experiences on set, which I guess makes sense. This is a miserable place to be. Jackson was searching for what cinematographer Andrew Lesney describes as a misty, eerie, unsettling reality where there is no escape for the Dead Marshes. They originally planned on shooting on location in some marshes on New Zealand's South Island, but quickly realized it was not plausible or safe to bring cast, crew, and all their equipment someplace legitimately dangerous. So they brought the marshes to life on studio property, creating three wet sets, as they're known, including a flooded car park, which were dressed with fake land masses and covered with moss and vegetation imported from the marshes. The composite work was tremendously difficult, using photograph-based matting effects to plunge what were, in reality, bright blue sky days into an appropriate gloom. I think it's mostly effective. You can tell, maybe just from the height of the plants, that this is a set, but they did a lot of work in terms of creating skillful sight lines, and I think that's, that's crucial to making this kind of illusion work. And the real marsh is still in the movie. There's that one beautiful aerial shot across it that Scala mutters about the path he found. And really, that's all you need. I think your mind will just fill in the rest then when they cut to the set. While filming, they often had to stop and wait for trains to pass nearby, and that wasn't the worst of it for Elijah Wood, who was repeatedly plunged into near-freezing water while filming the scene in which he confronts the dead. The underwater part in the movie was created by suspending Wood above a wind machine and shooting in slow motion. And I think it looks great. I think it's more convincing than that infamous bit in the first movie that gets used as memes a lot where he's just like floating in space alongside Hugo Weaving's head. And I think this is a better integration of Peter Jackson's beloved spooky skeletons imagery than the ghost army in Return of the King, which is probably my least favorite part of Return of the King. I'm less fond of the literal flames we get in the movie, like shooting above the ground. It's neat how they did it, that they ran gas through pipes hidden from sight by the reeds. I'm glad they didn't just CGI it, but it disrupts the spooky, mysterious atmosphere. The light should be barely visible to the point where the characters wonder if they're even there at all. Like when Gollum says, don't follow the lights, it's like, well, follow them where? They're right there. They're a couple feet away. Where would we follow them to? As usual in the movie adaptations, everything becomes more literal and confrontational than in the books to engage the audience. And for the most part, it still works. I had nightmares about that slow, sickening shot that pans over the corpse in the water, the music rising as Frodo stares, and then those eyes flash open to white. Again, you can see Jackson's roots in horror definitely paying dividends here. It's more tangible than the book. Same with the Ringwraith, which we get to see in detail, riding its badass new dragon leviathan steed thing. What is sacrificed is the sense of melancholy, of grief, as well as fear. And this is partially a consequence of cutting the bit where they walk through the wasteland outside Mordor, which I do understand because it's punchier to just get them to the Black Gate after the Marsh's set piece is done, and the gate itself captures that atmosphere anyway. This is also a consequence of moving Gollum's internal debates later in the movie, which I think is fine. By then, you've established Sam's rage, which makes it at least semi-plausible that Frodo wouldn't believe him. In the movies, Sam doesn't overhear Gollum talking about she, specifically. That's more of a stinger for the audience to keep us on the hook for the next movie, because that happens at the very end of the movie of the Two Towers. But when we do get to that debate between Gollum and Smeagol in the movie, it is, of course, flawless. This is such an iconic scene, that simple mirror image shot in reverse shot, cluing us into the dynamic visually, and Andy Serkis running the tonal gamut, from hilarious to heartbreaking to oddly triumphant at the end. You forget about the whole rest of the story when he's on screen. Everything just boils down to that internal struggle that's conveyed so perfectly. And this part of the movie still nails those all-important character dynamics, forming on a subtle, uneasy level now so they can explode and take over in the next movie. 
Gollum and Sam are natural opponents, and their petty squabbling provides the comic relief, perfect for Circus chewing the scenery as he loves to do. But he's equally adept at the quieter moments with Frodo. Centuries of obsession boiled down to a whisper. Gollum serves Frodo more happily than Sam because, as he says, Master knows. What does he know? That when the precious takes hold of you, it never lets go. That's why Frodo pities Gollum, but it also makes them romantic rivals of sorts for the ring's affection. And Wood plays those impulses of anger, jealousy, and sorrow beautifully. There's a terrific bit where Frodo is stroking the ring like a lover's cheek, only to overhear Gollum praising the precious as he strokes his own empty palm, pretending the ring is there. A phantom like the ghosts in the marshes. Unlike in the book, Frodo falls directly into the marshes. It, it makes it more action-oriented, like I was saying the adaptations do as a whole. But it also lets Gollum save him, further complicating Gollum's character. Was he saving Frodo? Or the ring? Or both? Frodo reminds Gollum and the audience that Gollum wasn't so different from a hobbit once. Who are you? Frodo asks Gollum, the central question of their relationship. By the end, he'll be asking that same question to himself, and he will have no answer. So I think that's going to wrap us up for this Lord of the Rings episode on Book 4, Chapter 2, The Passage of the Marshes. Thank you so much for listening. You can rate and review us on Podbean, on Spotify, on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf where patrons get early access, exclusive episodes, including the Star Wars series I'm doing now, and a bunch of other benefits besides. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf, or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com, and you can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter. Next week, we're going to be finally arriving at Mordor proper, the Black Gate, the entranceway to the end of the quest, and our heroes take one look at that and go, oh, we might be in trouble. So thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week with Book 4, Chapter 3 of The Lord of the Rings.